Welcome to Rise and Rouse, a podcast for people who give a damn. This is your host, Erin Allgood, social impact strategist, consultant, and recovering perfectionist. I can't believe we're already on episode three. Thank you so much to everyone who has tuned in so far. This week on Rise and Rouse, you'll hear my conversation with Audrey Holst of Fortitude and Flow. Audrey is a coach for ambitious high performers and the creator of the perfectionist archetypes. Audrey and I met in a co-working group for incurable entrepreneurs hosted by our friend Heather Thorkelson, who you'll meet later on in the season. There's something liberating about understanding the neurological and physiological basis of perfectionism that's helped me shift my perspective in many of my habits. Our conversation explores what it means to clue into your body's signals and how to address toxic perfectionism before you burn out. This is such an important conversation for anyone involved in activism or change making, and I hope you get some useful information to bring into your own life. I certainly have a um, a diverse background of experience. Uh, pre- previous to even the things that you mentioned, I have a degree in equine business management and riding. So I actually majored in horses. So um, it's been a uh, it's been a journey. <laughs> it it's so funny that you say that because I majored in biochemistry. And people sometimes look at me sideways for that too. And they're like, what, (laughs) what do you, you, what do you do now? I don't get it. But like, but I think you can attest to this too. Like we're like that. It's just like one step in the journey and you probably have all sorts of things you've taken from that background that like still come into play today. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think, um, one of the main threads that weaves itself through all of the work that I've done both with animals and humans is, is just this concept of this dynamic, amazing nervous system that living creatures have and how it interacts with the world and how it interacts with each other and even different species. And, um, you know, when I was working with horses earlier on, it was very common for me to work with the off the track race horses or the ones that came in that were, uh, you know, reactive or high energy or nervous or labeled as whatever, um, you know, personality they were, they were given. And I feel like there is a similar vibe that I have in my work now where I'm like, I like working with creatures, humans that have, that have that energy, that have that drive, that have that natural, um, that natural energy within them. And it's a matter of, of directing and using it in a way that's, that's serving. Mm, yeah. I love that that idea of like being able to tap into and understand like your energy in a much more kind of basic in a way because we we are all so disconnected from that. And so I think that reminder to basically be like, hey, let's like actually connect with this and understand it and work with it is it it's should be so I think basic, but it's so revolutionary and groundbreaking in so many ways. Yeah, I think that's I I think one of the things that happens once you start digging into this is you start to realize what is um sort of innate and wired in us and what we've been led to believe based on symptoms uh based on systems and society and the things that we are conditioned within um as we're growing up. It makes me think about like how I just reach for my phone all the time, you know, like I'm so conditioned by it. I'm like conditioned to scroll to like, not, you know, and I'm just, and then that furthers so much of the disconnect and just the, 
and and all of those different neurological kind of things that happen. So what are some of the cool stuff that you are up, you are working on right now? I'd love to hear just a little bit of like what's alive for you. Yeah. So one of the things that has been an interesting uh, journey for me is bringing a lot of the work that I do into the big law space. Uh, it seems like what I do in a lot of ways is a perfect fit. And maybe from an outsider's perspective, it's like, oh, that's kind of strange that that's what you do. Um, so the main piece of my work that is alive for me right now is perfectionism versus excellence and the difference between the two and how that shows up for people. And that's a big thing for lawyers. Um, we can go through, I don't know if we, how much we want to go through like the background of perfectionism or like sort of the origins of perfectionism and, and how that shows up for people. Um, but in terms of what's happening right now, um, working with folks in big law and helping them understand what perfectionism is, what it isn't, and how a lot of the ways we address it is actually a way simpler thing than we often make it out to be. Um, the brain loves, you know, complicated puzzles and complex ways of tackling a problem, especially if something feels big, it feels like the solution needs to be gigantic or an overhaul, or, you know, I need to just flip my whole, the, flip the table on my life and start over. Um, but often what's true is that the smaller, tinier acts are actually the most revolutionary ones for ourselves and for others also. Um, so I think that that's really alive for me. Um, I think also what's personally alive for me is the, the seasons are changing here. I live in new England and so it's getting colder and, uh, this is a time of year, which can sometimes be challenging for me. And based on my work with the nervous system and some of the folks that I've worked with, um, you know, that I've hired to work with over like the last few years, I have a different way of approaching this season and working with this season. And, and I'm excited to see how that shifts my experience because I think in the past, the colder weather has really kind of shut me down and put me in a bit of a, I don't want to say a freeze state, but a state that's been less accessible for me to gather energy from. And I think that it's possible to still like be with the season and realize that this is a lower energy season and still have more access to myself and what I need also. So that's kind of what I'm playing with this right now. <laughs> I love that. And I, I have, I mean, the winter is always such an interesting season for me too. Cause I, I similarly, like it's been the doldrums, especially in COVID over the last couple of years for me, I, I'm starting to similarly have, was just thinking about this. I'm like, Oh, this is the time when I go into kind of more of the hibernation, but like creative mode is what it feels like. And so it's much more of like an inward kind of facing season for me versus kind of like the kind of frenzy that comes, I think, from the regular just rest of my life. Right. Right. And I think a lot of it is is our interpretation or our enjoyment or lack of enjoyment of it, right? When you say that, I'm like, oh, that sounds pleasant. And I feel like people's experience of the seasons are often pleasant or unpleasant, you know, how they how they interpret those sensations, which is part of the work that I do is that pleasant versus unpleasant energy versus, you know, activation energy versus deactivation energy. So um, it's just interesting to see how it all weaves together. Mm. Well, how about you go back and just like, let's talk about like what perfectionism is and just kind of lay a little bit of background work for folks. Sure. So 
So this is my, uh, this has been through my experience, through my research, through um, interviews with perfectionists or, or recovering perfectionists or people who, you know, identified themselves as perfectionists in some capacity. And I think that uh, for folks who are listening and are either perfectionism adjacent or perhaps, you know, full on identify with it, just for context, uh, the book that I'm writing right now uh, has been in, in the works for a long time. And I'd been working with folks who identified as perfectionists for a while, but I wanted to get some more specific firsthand stories. So I reached out to my community and I just asked, hey, is there anybody here that identifies with perfectionism and would be interested in talking with me You know, for 45 minutes or so around their experience with perfectionism? And within, I'd say, about two days, I had 60 interviews on the books. So this, you know, this is something that folks are clearly resonating with and are clearly uh, experiencing to have that many people just boom, raise their hands and say, Hey, you know, me, um, I will spend 45 minutes of my day talking with you about this. So, so anybody who's, who's resonating, you are not alone. (laughs) Um, and so for, for me, what I've discovered is that nobody, nobody at age 30 wakes up and says, you know what? Perfectionism is the thing that I've not tried yet. And I really want to try that. Nobody, nobody just picks it up one day. Every single person I talked to could point to something when they were younger, that this is, there was an origin when I was younger, that this thing, I use this in some way, right? It was either nurtured by my family or it was nurtured within school systems, which school systems are really good at nurturing this particular uh, behavior because there's a very, you pass, you don't pass. You get a good grade, you get a bad grade, and then we move on. You know, the, the opportunity for learning and growth is very is not built into the way that things are, are arranged. So everybody I talked to had some sort of origin that they could point to, and then as they described their journey through their lives, people either have, you know, environments or people in their life that, that inflame the perfectionism or help them to bring it down. And so for me and for the way that I perceive perfectionism and work with it is it's essentially a survival mechanism. So to me, it's a short-term protective strategy that the body brings up in times of stress, essentially, or in very specific circumstances, which is is not a problem in and of itself, right? It's not like necessarily a problem. The problem becomes when something that is meant to be a short-term solution becomes a long-term solution and what that impact has on the body um, and all of the ways that the body functions well and all of the ways that the body starts to be negatively impacted by short-term strategies becoming long-term strategies in the system. I have never heard you say that before, but that like hits home so, so much because I, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, identify as a recovering perfectionist and the idea of it has, it was probably yeah a short-term response that became a long-term kind of like embedded in my body kind of thing. And now I've spent years trying to kind of like unlearn all of that. And un- and it's not even just the learning because it's not intellectual. It's like, how do I, how do I teach my body how to do this, how to do this differently? Um, and it's not about like replacing like that as a strategy with another terrible strategy. <laughs> it's about actually figuring out how to like let it go, I think in a lot of ways. 
Yeah. And actually, I'm going to give a shout out to Brandy Olson because this is uh, an idea that we fleshed out in just a ra- just a casual walk and talk conversation one day. We were talking about short-term protective strategies. And then what I think is the more, what what my goal is for clients, right? My, my goal, my altruistic goal for clients or just my, my goal for I guess humanity as a whole, right? If we're just going to go real broad stroke here, um, is moving away from this short-term protective, short-sighted way of functioning and actually moving into a more thriving, sustainable, care-focused way of being through the world where the things that we do actually have a nourishing impact in the long-term as opposed to just this sort of immediately protective because the the challenge with that immediately protective behavior which is another thing that comes along with perfectionism is this this isolation because this this protective piece becomes very isolating um the body is asking the question am i safe and do i belong and so if there's threats to these things right the body is going to try to arrange itself in a way that is going to you know protect the organism right we're the organism it's going to try to protect that organism and so if we feel like we don't belong and if we feel like we're not safe, what are we going to do? We isolate. And so that's a behavior that happens with perfectionism a lot. And that becomes basically the opposite of what is needed um, in a moment very often. Mm. Yeah. One of the things you had said to me before is that, you know, community is the antithesis or the antidote to perfectionism, which I mean, like hits also so hard too to think about that because it's, I also have a one of my colleagues, um, Emerald, who's also going to be on the show too. She she talks about um, community being the antithesis of white supremacy mm-hmm, culture mm-hmm. too. Yep. And I'm just like, and so these those like, th- I, I mean, like that feels like one of those you know like a little love triangle there between you know <laughs> so many different things. Maybe it's a triangle. I don't know my geometry very well. <laughs> <laughs> <But> <laughs> But but for sure, that's like there's definitely some of those intersections that are happening. <laughs> totally, totally. And I also want to uh, I want to just preface that not every community will do. You know, like not just not just a general community. When I say community, I need I mean community appropriate for like where you are, what you need, and that will probably be uncomfortable because it will be the opposite of what you're used to, but also is going to start helping you to repattern some of these protective mechanisms and not one that's going to just make them worse or that are going to reinforce the fears that you already have around, you know, being with people in community. So that is a, that is a whole other conversation, but that is also something that I will put out, put out there when I say community, I'm not just saying every community is going to work for this particular situation. Yeah. When I think of community, I do have that touchy feely feeling that like comes over that warm and fuzzy and be like, oh yeah, that's like community. But you're right. Like it's not, not every community is suited for like undoing perfectionism, which is like why the law work that you're doing with the lawyers like feels, I mean, like if you can help lawyers start to break down some of that, like urgency, perfectionism, like all of that, like that feels like so incredibly transformative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think so. And I think that, again, this is the sort of small work within bigger organizations over time. And it's all an experiment, right? Like only time will tell how, what the impact is on this work over long term. 
I'm like so excited though with your science brain to like see you track that over time so that like when we come back to this in five or 10 years, you're going to be like, oh, so here's what I've seen. Yeah. I think one of the things that is, uh, you know, a workshop that I ran recently, like 90% of the participants said that the stuff that was, that I taught was immediately implementable, which I think is the, is really important because it is stuff when we talk about rewiring that is a process that takes time, but it has to be something that is doable right away. And that's the whole that's the whole thing with perfectionism is often we have been forced into big leaps or we've had to make big leaps. And our system does better with small and doable over time because the body gets used to it. And the challenge with like big leaps is that the more we do it, and often if we have a negative experience with a big leap, we will be less likely to make that big leap in the future. Because our body's like, whoa, I did not enjoy that last time. That did not go well. I felt really stressed out. Um, so for folks who are doing big work in the world and have had to make those big leaps, it's just something to pay attention to and to track because there's nothing wrong with you, I want to say. If you are like, man, I'm really having – like I'm struggling with these things that I didn't used to struggle with so hard, it's worth going back and being like, okay, well, what was your experience? What was the outcome? How did you ex- – like what was the impact of that on you? Because if you did this big leap and then you were shut down for months and months and months, you know, I have clients that come back to me when they're starting to go through new transitions in their life because they've gone through some sort of a burnout in the past and now they're starting to approach something that in their system and perception mimics – kind of what they'd been through before. And it, and they start to get nervous because they're like, I don't want to have a repeat, right? So it's like guiding people through, all right, we got to put on our current, like put on the current perception and the current lens and move through this in a different way. Yeah. I think as somebody who's gone through big leaps and stuff like that too, like that's something that I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm like a big all or nothing kind of person sometimes. <laughs> Like, because I've just, I'm used to just being like, nope, I'm going to do this. But you're totally right. Like, when I look, think, start to think back to when things have felt the best, it has been, I mean, the last couple of years for me in my work has been, uh, and you've seen all of this, like, too, since we've known each other, is this like slow transition and kind of like in a, in a slow evolution and a becoming. Um, instead of this kind of like, nope, I'm doing everything differently now. Like, but some of those big pivot mo- points were so, important in my life, but they also came with such a big heaping side of, of trauma. <laughs> so now it's kind of like, okay, well, how do we do, you know? So, but it's like, I, I think there's some times in our lives where it's like that big, big need to kind of like cut ties or to shift or to like do a 180 is so, so very important. But then it's like, you have to go into recovery mode. Totally. And there has to be a, a reorientation, right? And that's often we don't give ourselves the time for reflection, reorientation, what I call integration. We don't have that. We don't take that time. And perfectionism tends to be really quick moving. It tends to be very reactive and it tends to just put its head down and keep going and never actually like looks up and takes in the scenery. It's kind of like, you know, perfectionism gets on the path and just sprints and it's like never saw the trees, never saw the field, never saw the 15 other paths, maybe off to the right or the left, you know? So, um, you know, we talk about how it shows up in behavior within organizations, you know, perfectionism gets very obsessed with mistake making. But the challenge is when in this this mindset and in this kind of survival place, it is actually more likely that you're going to make mistakes. You're going to 
send off that email without thinking. And then you're going to have to like amend that email. I see that happens a lot where people like do something really fast and then they, they're like, oh shoot. And then they have to amend it. If they just slowed down for like 30 seconds, it would have been a one and done. You know, that, that sort of just not really thinking, which is not necessarily, there's nothing wrong with that, right? The brain is always kind of doing its thing. And when you're really adept at what you do, you just go. But perfectionism tends to make mistakes more often. It make decision-making can be really challenging. Having access to creativity can be really challenging. And again, it kind of depends on what state your system is in, because if your body is in a survival state, it has certain priorities, priorities being being a, staying alive. Um, and your body doesn't care about creativity when you're just trying to stay alive. Right. So it sounds like one of the things that you would say is that this kind of just this, even just slowing down is like one of those strategies to start to like undo some of the, the, I don't want to say damage because I think that that it sets up a binary that I don't want to set up, but, but yeah, so it it can, you can address some of the perfectionism. (laughs) Slowing down is a really good way to allow the body to experience something differently. And it's a big one. The slowing down is a big one. And uh, the slowing down is extremely uncomfortable for folks. And I think that that's the other thing that is worth pointing out, that there are so many different dynamics at play. One, when you start to shift a dynamic in your system, your system has these sort of efficiency grooves where your body's like, this is the efficient way. This is the most energy-saving way. And this is how we this is how we function, Right. When you start to change anything and you start to shift out of an existing groove, the body goes, that's not efficient. Why are we doing that? So there's always this discomfort because your body is having to readjust, reorient, decide whether or not that's really the right thing, right? Which is often when all these kind of thoughts pop up around, is this the right way? I don't really know. We have this concept that if it's not comfortable, it's wrong in some way. So being able to get on board with these periods of discomfort that come along with shifting things is is a huge practice. And just being able to pay attention is something that speed doesn't always allow. So just in the act of starting to pay attention, notice things we didn't before, which is also one of the um, like one of the tools that I teach in the process that I teach, just starting to slow down and notice makes a huge impact in general. Because if your system is in a this, this state of having blinders on, I'm making if people can't see it, I'm making the motion of having blinders on either side of my eyes, you know, having blinders on, being really centrally focused in front of you, which by the way is what technology does to us, puts us in this very tunnel vision state. And this is the other thing, is when we put our bodies into states which mimic survival situations, your body starts to go, oh, I think so. I think, I think maybe we're supposed to be surviving right now. So when you actually slow down, you actually look up and you look around and you start to, right? This is both literal and uh, metaphorical. <laughs> it can actually shift your body's perception on, an, on a situation and your, you know, mental uh, cognitive perception of a, of a situation. When I was in grad school, we had, um, we, I was introduced to the concept of a sit spot, you know, which I don't know if you've heard that term before, but I'm sure you can imagine what it is. It's 
the idea of just sitting, you know, finding a place in nature, um, whether it's like, you know, your stoop in the backyard or something like that, or um, somewhere out in the woods or on a mountain or in the water or something, wherever it might be. But just having a space where you go and you sit and you kind of like drop into that space and you notice it's not necessarily, I mean, it is meditative for sure, but it's not intended to be kind of a meditation. It's more about like just keenly observing the world around you. And one of the, you know, when I was going through a particularly tough period of time, I remember I had a, I had this lovely rock that I, um, (laughs) that was my rock in the forest that I would go to and sit there. And I, one of the things I noticed over time was just how the, it was right next to a river, how the, the blue changed in the water when it was reflecting the sky, depending on, you know, whatever time of year it was, whatever, you know, kind of uh, whatever the weather was. And there was just this like, like beautiful study in that, that kind of changing blue over time that I had. Um, And just, I remember kind of like honing in on that as a means of just being able to like need to keenly observe something and, and to be, you know, present, just be so very, very present in that moment. Um, And also how that was completely just antithetical to what my normal life was. Right. Yeah. They've actually done, um, done, I just posted about this the other day. Uh, They've done a bunch of studies on the impact of nature on organizations and teams and just as an individual, what what it does to us as human beings to be out in nature. And I think what you point out is a really good thing to for people to just kind of take in and see how that how being able to what I would say pay attention to nuance like if you're able to pay attention to nuance in a moment what does that do with your ability to make a different decision or to notice things that you didn't notice before or to be in conversation with somebody and maybe be picking up on the stuff that if you were just, if your brain was going really quickly, maybe would not be picking up on, or maybe ask questions that you may not have occurred to, you know, to ask in a moment. So I think that's a really good example of A, our environments do impact us. So I also want to say that, you know, when you're surrounded by technology and fast pace and people all day long, that does have an impact on us. And being aware of that impact is also, um, also important. One of the studies that I cite in in the work that I do is just around the an, a study that they did around people observing other people's stress. And this was something that they observed both in person and also virtually. So they found that people who observe a coworker's stress in person raises their cortisol levels by 26%, virtually 24%. In a stranger, about it impacts about 10%. And in personal relationships, it can be up to 40%. So that is all that is to say is that people have we impact each other in ways that we may not necessarily be conscious of or aware of like maybe subconsciously we are right we come into a room and certain person we see a certain person and they have either a pleasant or unpleasant impact on us and it's you know when we talk about cortisol often people are talking about cortisol as a stress hormone it's a hormone that shows up in stress situations but cortisol is essentially an energy hormone So cortisol is used in our sleep-wake cycles, it's used in our metabolism, it's used in organ function. So that is the, the, I want to point to that just because as we talked about earlier, when your body is having, uh, is using energy in ways that it's not meant to do all the time, that has 
impact, right? That's when we start to deal with what we call allostatic load, which is when the body is the body's baseline, which the body is always trying to bring us back to a baseline, right? Back to its kind of optimal functioning our baseline starts to rise. And that is especially where people start to feel uneasy with rest or uneasy with relaxation. They start to feel like there's something wrong. Like if I get some time for rest, that actually feels wrong in some capacity, which makes sense because the body is people can't see again. My, my hand is raising. <laughs> my hand went from the bottom of my screen to the middle of my screen. So, you know, when our, when our baseline has risen up here, which is in the middle of my screen, when we try to bring things back down, it feels our body has been become efficient up here. The, it feels wrong essentially. So I wanted to just say that to people. If you were somebody who like every time you go to, you actually have some downtime and you actually want to take some rest and all of a sudden you find yourself filling it with more stuff. And it's like, Oh, okay. That makes sense actually. I remember when my um, partner at one point we were on on our first like big vacation together said to me, Aaron, you do not have to vacation as hard as you work. And I was like, oh, (laughs) shit. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for calling me out so perfectly in that moment. (laughs) Like the things that he said sometimes are just so incredibly astute and observant. And I'm just like, fuck. Like, <laughs> like now I gotta look I'm at sure that in not myself. A person listening here right now that can relate to that statement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh huh. <laughs> so yeah, it's hard. But you're right, though. Like that whole like the idea of of who we are as being kind of like our work work selves and our like non work selves is also like a distinction that I think a lot of people try to like make, but because we're in the same body, it's a little bit of a moot point um, because it's because all of those things, those strategies that are helping us at work, you know, cross over obviously into our home life, as you're saying, the allostatic load is like perfect like that. And I, and I think people try to create, let me see, people try to create, I try to create, those kinds of distinctions because it's like, it's, it for me is kind of like, nope, I compartmentalize. This is work. This is home. And I forget that I actually am the same person. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, environments will have impact us and people have impact on us. So like we will feel, you know, you're going to feel more relaxed with a partner that you trust, trust and be able to kind of be nourished in that moment versus maybe when you're in you know, what people often will describe as it's basically like going to battle, right? People feel like they're going into battle in certain work situations. But yes, it, the the impact on your system, the overall impact on your access to energy or your use to ener- use of energy, um, your ability to refill that cup back up again, you know, it's such it's such a cruel, kind of like a cruel joke because as stress levels get higher, uh, we know, well, Sleep is one of those things that helps to replenish those energy stores, you know, kind of bring things back to allostasis, get things. The the cruel joke is that when, you know, when the cortisol is kind of, when those levels have been a little bit whacked out, now you're going to have trouble sleeping. So now it becomes this thing, and especially with perfectionism, right? Where it's like, I want to get this right. I want to get those eight hours sleep. I want to, you know, I want to drink eight, you know, the perfect amount of water and get the perfect amount of sleep. And and a lot of the the thing that's just so funny about it is it becomes more difficult. And the way we approach our strategies also circles back to our system. If you approach your sleep, essentially, right, in a survival-oriented, I must get sleep way, 
your body is perceiving danger, right? So your body's like, I don't want to freaking go to bed. There's clearly a tiger in this room that we haven't identified. Like, I know there's something wrong here. So the way we approach things, the way we perceive things, the way we think about things, our level of comfortability or perception of threat or danger, these concepts, which are intellectual, translate into our experience, which translates into our bodies. So that is a lot of the rewiring, undoing, awareness of just getting really present with what is here, like what's actually here, and the narratives and stories that we're used to telling ourselves, which perpetuate these loops. Yeah, that's real. <laughs> like, uh-huh. Again, it's like, I think there's like a, once people start to, I mean, I'm, I'm so interested to hear about this in your work. Like, once people start to like peel back those layers of perfectionism and start to like actually do the work. So I would imagine some people just like, there's like a bit of a freaking out to the system and like that kind of recovery period has got to be tough. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's, I, I think that um, what I've noticed with the folks that I've worked with in general is they have gone through some stuff in their lives. So generally the folks that I work with don't have an expectation of ease, <laughs> which, which is both a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. But when it comes to rewiring, I think they are more apt to get on board with things being a little bit you know, things are improving, but they're still a little rough or like, oh, this thing happened, but like not, but sort of that being a theme that's happened in their lives before. So they don't get, they don't get too bogged down. And also right off it, I'm in direct support roles with people. So they get into a session with me and I was like, okay, well, let's, <laughs> let's talk about this for five minutes and let's get a new perspective on it. And let's, let's not, you know, wallow in it. Cause that's what happens too, is we get stuck in our perceptions. And that's why, you know, you hire coaches and stuff to be like, mm. Maybe not. Um, so it puts people in relationship to this like liminal space. And I think that just, just prepping them to know that that might happen makes it a little bit less scary once they get there. And so like liminal space being where like you haven't completely taken your foot out of the boat you're leaving and you haven't completely put all your weight into the other boat that you're stepping into. So you feel a little bit uncertain, unsure, not really oriented completely. And that's normal. And actually people move through that way quicker than it feels. In the moment, it feels like I'm going to live here forever. And then I'll, you know, I'll get off a phone call one week and the next week it's like things have completely shifted, which is how it goes. I love that you're doing the work in organizations where like I think there I think about like the systems of like the system of the body, the systems of like interpersonal teams, the systems of a larger organization, and how there's all all of these different bits and pieces are are intersecting with one another. And the you know, thinking about Adrian Marie Brown and like fractals from emergent strategy, the idea of mm -hmm. like the the small mm -hmm. is replicated in the large and so on and so forth. So I think that, I mean, when I think about the work I do in organizations and the work that like that you're doing, it's it's so much about like you're helping to tend to like the the individual, but you're also doing things like workshops and and like working with folks 
across an organization in bigger ways too. And I think that those, you know, for folks who are like listening, I just, I think that that's like an important strategy to talk about because you can't really start to, because again, you're talking about the environment. It's, it's both like your internal environment and your external environment that you're tending to, and you can't create change without doing both. Uh, Yeah, I completely agree. It's, it has to be a both and. Yeah. And it's, I think that a lot of folks, especially in the nonprofits I work with, um, and in the for-profits too, they're oftentimes thinking about like, oh, how do we create social change in the world? Like, how do we create and improve our, our social impact? How do we be more of whatever? And they completely forget about the internal culture of an organization and what that's all about. So I can't tell you how many, like, like companies I know out there that are B Corps, but have like such shit internal culture, but you'd look at them and be like, oh, they're leading their industry. They do so much, so much good things in the world. They're so sustainable, whatever that might be. And yet there's like some real bad shit happening on the inside. Yeah, that is a, uh, that's some real talk right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that's also, you know, that is, I think that we could we could point to that as an aspect of perfectionism in a lot of ways, right? It's a it's a sort of masking of reality or it's a kind of false perception of of what's going on. Often people are talking the talk, but what's happening internally is not really matching up and that is not sustainable. That does you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> over long periods of time, um that does not that does not ride well. I see that so often in that kind of, it's this perfect like looking external facing green washing, you know, woke washing kind of a, a thing that organizations will do. And yeah, you're right. It is all about perfectionism. So one of the things, so this is something that um I think when we're talking about fractals, right, we're talking about the bigger and the smaller. I see this is something that comes up with people a lot too as individuals it's something that I've been chewing on for a while and I I haven't quite gotten the way like the words around it so I'm just going to talk about it here and I think that people can probably even help with this right it's so a lot of the people that I work with are the folks that handle things really well without drama and people see them as sort of pillars of the community or like being the strong dependable folks and they don't complain and they don't ask for a lot. And the impact of being that person on them is very challenging. And what ends up happening is people take all of this for granted and they see this particular person, right? These are these perfectionists as they've got their stuff together. They can handle it. They don't need anything. They've got this. Meanwhile, the internal experience of this person is like, you don't appreciate me. You don't see the work I'm putting in. I am killing myself for this organization and getting nothing in return. And this person is burning out from the inside. And I think that that's kind of what happens, right? That's the individual experience, but that's exactly what you're describing in the organizational experience, right? From the outside, you know, I would call this, this is kind of like the optics perfectionist. We talk about different, different archetypes is like keeping up appearances and what meanwhile, just 
negating any sort of need of the body or emotional need or or like you know chemical need any of these things for the sake of the you know the greater good and that listen that has created a lot of amazing things and that has destroyed a lot of amazing people too so there is this this sort of paradigm shift right where that in order to make shifts within organizations and make shifts within individuals it's like how do we do the work that we want to do and somehow take it down a notch, right? Like, are we willing to push ourselves a little bit less? Like, are we willing to? And and that's a that's a personal question. That's an organizational question. But I think it's something that I see and I I wonder about. I I see it all the time as well. Especially you know doing strategic planning for organizations, there always comes a time. I mean, I would say like 90% of the time when I'm working with organizations, I'll say, we are going to need to narrow the scope of what you're working on because you can't do all of these things well. And nobody likes it when I say that. They like get real upset when I say that. And so they they usually will push back. And that's where things like tend to, I don't want to say fall apart, but they it tends to be like a real, like a leverage point in which things start to either either shift or they don't for an organization. And sometimes because folks, am I thinking of an, an organization I worked with a few years ago in particular, like struggled so hard with the decision-making part of things that they they literally couldn't make a decision about what they would let go. And they, one, they didn't want to. Two, they also just couldn't, like they, they couldn't make decisions collectively as a group at all. So I had to create a decision-making framework for them so that they could actually start to make some progress on on literally just decision-making in general and, and train them on like, here's how we make decisions. Like it's not, it doesn't come easy to people in general. I think it doesn't come easy to organizations because of so many of the dynamics of what we're talking about today. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the other thing that is, it, um, it occurs to me and so many people have said it. And I think Andrew Marie Brown talks about it too, is like, we have to talk about imagination, right? So perfectionism is let's take what exists what already exists, what I know to be true, true in quotations, and let's just tight fist it and like get what exists down really, really well, you know, like some version of that. And in order to what you're talking about is no, we're actually going to imagine something that doesn't exist in your reality right now, right? Like I am presenting something to you that does not exist in your reality. And that is really scary for folks. And some people are not, they've never had to imagine or even conceive something that's not written out in front of them, planned out for the next 20 years, you know? And that is, uh, that's a practice for folks to be able to. And so I think it's such a brilliant thing. Like you're talking about, Hey, I'm literally going to create something that you can hold onto during this time of transition and uncertainty, right? I'm going to give you a framework for making these decisions, right? Because you've never had to do this. You've never had to. So I think having, right, working, I think it's another really good example of why it's important when you are going through these sort of big shifts to be in relationship with somebody who is going to stay steady and solid while people are running around with like like the buildings on fire. When you're like, oh, by the way, guys, the building's not on fire. Like there's just like some toast that's like burning in the toaster. You know what I mean? Like, but people smell smoke and all of a sudden they go, oh my gosh. So that's what happens to the body. The body makes assumptions and makes associations and makes predictions. The body smells smoke. Oh my gosh. The, you know, 
the house is on fire. And you're like, hey, I've smelled this smoke before. We just need to take the toast out of the toaster. I love that. That is a great analogy. <laughs> That's exactly the burnt toast analogy, which I will refer to it from now henceforth. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fresh analogy, folks. You right. heard it here first. <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> That's what the episode's going to be called. One thing I want to talk about, I mean, there's so many other things I want to talk about because, and we'll do this again sometime, I'm sure. But just as this, this one of the things I said to you as we, I would have invited you to come on was like I really want to talk about toxic positivity because like it's if I like feel like I need to heal from (laughs) some experiences around toxic positivity right now and I was like other people want to as well so do you mind like let's talk about that like the toxic positivity and perfectionism and um, I have a feeling it relates back to the optics perfectionist like that you were talking about yeah so when you talk about toxic positivity how what is your definition of it the idea that um, somebody is externally just putting out these kind of like everything is amazing kind of vibes, like good vibes only. Like I can never let myself feel anything other than something positive or else the entire world is going to fall apart. And I think I, the one per- I like I'm thinking in particular is like somebody who for whom like anytime I have like expressed anger, like legit anger equates that as being like abuse and it's like oh no i can be angry and this it becomes like this big overreaction i think so i have so many things to say about all this (laughs) (laughs) okay so let me uh let me just go through it kind of the way that uh so first of all i would define it similarly right like i'm like are we on the same page with the definition yes so um what I would say is that there is a there is a perception of, and I think that this does go with perfectionism, and it's sort of it goes with the survival that if I am good enough, if I am a good person, I'm putting that in quotes, if I am good, if I behave well, if I don't do bad things in my life, then I somehow earn good, right? Good stuff. If I'm not a bad person, I don't do bad things, the equation that I have written in my life is that only good things will happen to me. I think that goes along also with certain schools of so-called manifestation, where I can only think good stuff. If I think anything wrong or bad, then bad things will happen to me. So I think that there's a lot of there's a lot caught up with there. I think we could talk about religion. I think we can talk about, like I said, schools of manifestation and schools of thought around that, uh, that I can control everything that happens in my life if only I stick to this positive path, right? I can only stick to this positive path and I can't have any negativity around me because it's going to invite, you know, negativity. So I've been through that myself. I've been through sort of conditioning around that myself. I've had to come out on the other side of that. Um, It's made me like very allergic to a lot of things that smell like manifestation often. And I'm not saying that there's nothing to any of these things, but what I'm saying is that they've been weaponized in a really messed up way. And I think the other thing that you're talking about too is like when somebody is expressing a feeling and you are receiving it as abuse or um, something that's actually not like objectively not correct, this is talking about the, the ability for a system to be in an active activated state and be okay in an activated state. This is something that um, you know my perspective has has been influenced by the work of Kimberly Ann Johnson and her Jaguar work, 
being able to have activation in your system and not completely flood you and like blow blow you out basically. Because that's the other thing that happens is when we're all when we are controlling how we feel and the world around us in such a way that we only have this very small like window of tolerance that we can basically still think, still function in, it completely it shrinks our vocabulary of being able to be a fully expressed human and be okay. It's very common for people, right? They want their lives to be very calm because when things go too, too exciting, and I'll just say exciting as a general, like too activated, they can't function in that activated state. And what I'm saying is that is something the system has to be trained for. You have to train your system to be able to be in higher states of activation and still stay present and not have that completely take you out and, and, you know, and that takes time and practice, right? I'm not saying, you know, that's your nervous system, right? This is a person's nervous system, but if you are committed to not being able to go through higher states, like if that is not something you're working on, it's a very difficult way to live. And this has negative impact on people around you. Um, I think this is another thing, right? We can start talking about, you know, white supremacy and, and that sort of thing too. So that is, uh, that is my long take on <laughs> toxic positivity. I'm not sure if that was kind of uh, – those are my thoughts on it and reflections on what you said, and I'm not sure if that <laughs> lines up or what your thoughts are on that. No, that was – I mean, I, like I told you, I wanted to like heal a little bit but through the conversation. That helps me understand it so much better. I'm sure it will help other folks too because – I, yeah, I hadn't connected all of those dots myself and you just did it for me. And, um, and I, there's so many people walking around in that same kind of way where they're, and it's like, I think never being able to experience negative emotions or kind of like shutting that out. So in such a big way, like, just think to me, it just feels like you're not truly living. Like you're not able to experience yourself as this fully, like, this as a full human being. And it feels like such a, it feels like such a waste or or not a waste. I don't want to say, but like, it feels just such a um, missed opportunity to kind of like do that healing and to kind of being able to deeply feel, I think is one of the most important things that we can do as human beings. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I've started to use the, um, the affective circumplex model, which you don't need to remember any of those words because it's very complicated and the model itself can be really complicated too. But I've kind of simplified this for folks when I start teaching them how to observe themselves and how they feel, because like you said, right, you said the concept of a negative feeling that really gets people caught up. And if we talk about the way that, for instance, I really like the work that Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett does around emotions and and her work is pretty revolutionary and it's a little bit um it's a little bit controversial but i think that in the context of the conversations that i have with folks it's actually really helpful so her supposition is that emotions are actually concepts that there's no not such a uni- there's not a universal around emotions or how we respond to certain things different cultures actually have different responses to different life events that sort of thing and so being able to get a little bit more curious and a little bit more objective about how we observe ourselves versus you know, activation versus deactivation and pleasantness versus unpleasantness. And so I will, you know, bring people just through the, the observation of, okay, like on a scale of one to 10, 10 being like the most activated you could ever imagine and like zero being neutral or on the opposite end of the spectrum, zero being neutral, negative 10 being like completely collapsed. Like where are you on that spectrum, right? People tend to have a little bit of a 
oh, okay, where am I on that energy spectrum? Okay. Once they have that number, like say I'm at like, you know, from instance right now, like I would put myself on like a four on the activation. Okay. So now about pleasant or unpleasant, like is it, how do I feel about this level of energy right now? Am I feeling pleasant about it? Am I feeling unpleasant about it? Right. Okay. I'm feeling about, I don't know, about a five on the pleasant. Right. So it's like, I have a kind of an idea of where I am in my own little ecosystem of sensation. And this is using information from my body, which is nerves giving me signals about what is happening within me with my hormones, with my organs, with my circulation, with my heart rate, with right all of these things. It's just a simpler way to be with yourself. And it takes a little bit of the interpretation and value judgment on, is this good or bad? You know, should I be feeling this way or should I not be feeling this way? Uh, so I just want to present that as a as a option for folks to play around with also. Mm, I love the idea of of just kind of taking those things into account and not just having it be like a singular kind of, you know, oh, bad, good. You know, like it's we're so I mean, again, like binaries, like we get so locked into binaries and we're not able to like look at things from a more nuanced, complex way. So what I want to just we've gone all over the place too at this point. What would you is there anything that you want to make sure we touch upon before we wrap up? I think the main thing I do want to highlight is that like. It is, it's perfect. It can be perfectionism all the way down, right? We want to tackle our perfectionism perfectly. And then like, I want to do the perfect things in order to, you know, cure my perfectionism, right? These, these are the things that I hear about the things that I observe. And it does require some sort of communal space, whether it is a space you're in with somebody else, whether it's like an individual like me, or whether it is a space that you can slowly start to experiment with and give your body the experience of doing something scary and not dying because that's literally, you know, that sounds dramatic, but that's your body's experience in a moment. That is, that is a piece of it. But just like, I do not believe it is a realistic thing to just go up in a mountaintop and meditate and somehow change your entire life. Because guess what? Once you come back down, you have to start interacting with humans again. That whole inner peace is going to blow up. This work has to be done in a way that it is usable, accessible, and realistic in a moment with other human beings in the world. So you can be the most patient, kind, generous individual in a room by yourself. But once you get into the world with other people, that's when that's when perfectionism shows its head. So that's that's kind of the the thing that I would highlight. <laughs> people don't like that, but it's true. It's so true. And it's, I mean, just to go back to what we had said before, is like sometimes those things are, sometimes we have short-term things that just go haywire and become long-term. And I'll just share this little story before we move on. But just once COVID hit, I was living by myself. And like, oh, I became so double down into my perfectionist nature because it was, it was literally, like you were saying, like, it is a survival mechanism. And it was a and it was a short-term survival mechanism. And I remember like, I was like, all right, what are all of the things I need to do to stay healthy? I need to use my, my like happy light, like <laughs> my light for my seasonal depression every day. I need to go for a walk every day. I need to do yoga every day. I need to meditate every day. I need to read a book every day. I need to call someone every day. And I need to make sure that I feed myself. I literally had this whole, I had this on my whiteboard, like gazillion different lines. I mapped it all out. I would check off when I would do those things so that I could see that like, okay, in this month, I 
you know, meditated so many times. I walked so many times and it was, it was such a mechanism and it's like such a, such an extreme kind of version of how that kind of showed up in my life. And I was like, if I don't do all these things, I'm going to fall apart. And I, I didn't, thankfully I'm still here, <laughs> but fuck, that was hard. Yeah. And it makes right. Given the circumstances and giving the like literal survival, you know, perception and reality of that environment, like here's the thing, right? It worked. And that's what our body does. Our body goes, that worked. I'm keeping that. And it worked for two months. I think it was like, I, you know, maybe, maybe not even quite two months, but it was just, it was enough to get yes. me through. Yes. Like the worst yeah. of it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that people can certainly relate to, <laughs> you know, the short, again, short term solutions and like those survival situations. Heck yeah. Throw everything at it. And again, if we're in different, if circumstances have changed, goals have changed, environment has changed, and what was working is no longer working, cool. Then like, let's make some adjustments. Right. Right. Let's let go of the things that are not serving anymore. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. That feels good. (laughs) Thank you so very much for this. I'm just so grateful to you and I'm just so excited and... I'm excited that folks will have a chance. We'll have an all everything we've talked about will go into the show notes. You know, if folks anything linkable will go there. And I'm excited for folks to go check out their perfectionist archetypes because I think that's gonna be really fun for folks. There were so many amazing people that were referenced during this episode, which I really love. And I think it's also just a really wonderful example of like we are influenced by people and in good ways. And that's a good thing too. So like let's pay attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I like being able to trace the lineage of how these thoughts came from as well to be able to be like, this originated with these folks. And because I think it's like, one, it just gives credit to where credit's due. And also just as you're just saying too, it's an ecosystem. We live in an ecosystem. There's all these interrelated relationships and and ways in which we infect people in the environment and in ourselves, just everything. So, so much fun. I love the interconnections. Yeah, totally. And thank you so much for this opportunity. This was a lovely way to start my day. (laughs) Oh, same here too. Thank you so much. Thank you to Audrey Holst for joining me in conversation today. If you want to learn more about her work, you can check out fortitudeandflow.com, connect with her on LinkedIn, or check the show notes for a link to download her Perfectionist Archetypes Guide. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review to help us reach more people. Make sure to follow Rise and Rouse wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss your chance to hear from someone who gives a damn. Follow us on Instagram at Rise and Rouse and sign up for my newsletter by going to allgoodstrategies.com. Rise and Rouse is created and hosted by me, Erin Allgood. It is produced and edited by Steph George of Stefania Audio. Production support from Grace Cleary-Morin and Yana Krasanova. Our theme music is written and produced by Chris Marion. 